God bless you. I'm already emotional, and I haven't even got into the text yet. I don't know what's wrong with me this morning. It could be that song, Anchor, there's something about that that kind of stirs something up within you. It could be that uh, every time I come back from vacation, I, I'm thinking I'm going to be greeted by a group of elders that say, thanks for your service, but we found someone else. Um, so I'm still pastor, right? You don't know anything? Okay, good. I'll calm down, settle in. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you, and if you have been a part of armed services at any point and served our country, we salute you and we thank you for your service. I think about Memorial Day and, you know, yeah. I always think about Memorial Day and Mother's Day and these things, and I think, Lord, do you want me to, you know, teach something special for those days and every time he just says no so we just kind of keep going on with the text you know um but uh actually i do have a little something different for us this morning you know memorial day and you have mother's day a couple weeks ago and then you had cinco de mayo and then you have graduations coming up and it just seems like there's a time where there's a lot of gatherings a lot of family a lot of time where we get to be with people that we know and love and care about that don't know Jesus Christ. In fact, I just got back um, from vacation where I spent some time with some of my family members who don't know the Lord. It's a bittersweet kind of scenario, isn't it? I mean, you love to see them, you care about them, but you care about them and love them so much that your heart breaks for them. I mean, his prayer, even already this morning, he doesn't know what I'm going to talk about. And yet, even within that prayer, God had clearly demonstrated through the power of the Holy Spirit, just how, uh, how God knows exactly what it was that he had on the agenda for this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Speaking of a guy who needed an anchor. Now, there are those who would say there's something a little bit fishy. You're going to get a bunch of these, so just get ready. Uh, about the story that we're going to look at this morning. The idea of a man beaten, uh, eaten by a giant fish and then being spit up alive on a beach, well, is just for some hard to swallow. Um, <laughs> I know it's bad taste. <laughs> I've had Bible-believing Christians that say, you know, Pastor, you don't really believe in the story of Jonah, do you? And I'll give you my rebuttal to chew on. Um, Jesus believed in it, and he used it as an example in his teaching. I won't forget, just six, eight months ago, in a debate on television between a, um, a professing Christian but didn't believe that the Bible was to be received literally and a Baptist minister from Texas who did believe that the Bible was to be taken literally. And this very question was asked by that news anchor. The news anchor asked, um, do you have to believe in, for instance, the literal understanding of Jonah to be a Christian? Here was the Baptist minister's answer. His answer was, to be a Christian, you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And that was a brilliant answer. But implicit in that answer is, well, if you don't believe in the story of Jonah, then you don't believe what Jesus Christ said because he referenced the story. In fact, he used it as an illustration of himself. 
Nevertheless, it is still, as you look at the story, a good story. It's a good drama. Like any good drama, you have a man, you have sailors, you have an ocean, you have a storm, you have a boat. But uh, there is much that lies deep beneath the surface. In the book of Jonah, God called Jonah to preach against the wickedness of a city called Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which would be the prevailing world empire some 40 to 50 years chronologically after what we're studying here in the text this morning. Now that was a calling placed on Jonah's life that would have greatly displeased Jonah. And we're going to see that he chooses to disobey that calling. And the reason is because the Assyrians were an up-and-coming world empire at the time, and they were a threat, not just to Israel and specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel, but to anybody who was regionally relevant at the time. And the thing about the Assyrians were they were a brutal kind of people, very brutal. The way that they treated their enemies, just cruel, torturous methods. Um, if you have kids um, here this morning, just cover their ears. Or if you don't like graphic, I don't mean to be graphic, to be graphic. But just to give you a sense of the kind of people that they were. They would cut off the appendages of their enemies and then burn the cuts where those appendages were cut as a means of torture. They would pile skulls outside of the city walls of a city that they would uh, capture as a means of declaring, don't mess with the Assyrians. They were known for skinning men alive, and they were known for bringing their captives back in single file line, um, pulling them by hooks that were clung to their jaws. And so they are regarded by historians, by many historians, as being perhaps the most brutal prevailing world power in all of human history. And there's more. I could go on, but I think the stage has been set. You all could probably at this point understand why Jonah has very little interest in going to preach in Nineveh. However, and here's the problem. The second that Jonah or you or me start deciding for ourselves what things we're going to obey when it comes to God's call upon our life and what things we're not, we're in a lot of trouble. Just like the second that that person decides what things he's going to believe in God's word or not, he's in trouble. If we're going to say yes or no to some things that God says, I got to tell you, our God, he will not ever force his will upon us, but he has very creative ways, as we'll see in the text this morning, of negotiating with us when we choose to step outside of the bounds of his call and his um, uh, call to action of obedience as Christians in our lives. Okay, so verse 1, Jonah chapter 1. We're going to go through two chapters, so we're going to go kind of quick this morning. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come upon me. So Nineveh is about 500 miles east, maybe northeast of Israel, what would be modern day, I think, Iraq. And this is a pretty simple sort of ABC command of God to Jonah. Arise, catch the first cab that you can get, 
or camel caravan, you know, and just kind of make your way to Nineveh, preach against their wickedness. That's it. It's that simple. But here's the problem. Jonah didn't like them. They were a brutal people, as we talked about. They were bent on conquest and world domination. And not only that, they were Gentiles. And so uh, Jonah, being a, a Jewish, loyal nationalist to the core, to ask Jonah to preach salvation to the Assyrians would be like asking a Holocaust survivor to preach love to a Nazi war criminal. And so he gets this command. He exits stage left. He doesn't want any part of it, verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God said, go. The prophet said, no. And so instead, he went down to Joppa, it says, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish is probably like modern-day southern tip of Spain, some 2,500 miles exactly due west of Israel. So that gives Jonah about 3,000 miles of distance between where God wanted him and where he would end up. So the first thing that you ask yourself when you look at this is, why did Jonah disobey God's call? Was it because he was afraid of the Assyrians, of the Ninevites? certainly possible. They were a brutal people. He could have been afraid. However, and we're not going to go through the whole book this morning, but if you finish the book tonight, you might want to, to see the end of the story. If you read chapters three and four, you'll see that most likely that was not the reason why Jonah did not go to Nineveh. It was not because he was afraid, but I would argue on the contrary. You would think that he would have chopping at the bit like, man, it's about time that someone go out there and let those guys have it because they are a brood of people and I want to preach against them. And, and yet I would say it's just the opposite because I think he knew his God. See, knowing his God, knowing full well how merciful, how loving, how forgiving, how long-suffering, how bearing his God was, Jonah hating this, these people, I think he was afraid that he would go to Nineveh, he would pre preach to the Assyrians, which we find out in chapter 3, he does exactly that, and they repent. And he didn't want that. And it's, there's not a month that goes by that I don't meet someone or you don't meet someone in this church that walks into these doors or you don't know someone at work that says, maybe it's an excuse, but they say that the reason that they don't go to church or the reason that they don't get right with God is because they've sinned so much that there's no way that God could ever forgive them of their sins. And yet here's Jonah who hated these people because of their sin. He hated them so much he ran away from the opportunity to preach to them because he knew his God. Because he knew that his God might just forgive them and have mercy on them instead. Yet another powerfully damaging argument against those who would say the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. I don't know what Bible they're reading. In fact, they're not reading the Bible. They're listening to someone tell them something in the Old Testament that haven't read the Bible either for that matter. In fact, Jonah, he has the dubious distinction of being the only prophet of God um, that outright rejected the commission of God exactly because he did not want 
the people of Nineveh to be saved. And so he ran as fast as he could in the opposite direction to this seaside town, Tarshish, which would have been the furthest outpost of all of the trade routes of the Mediterranean. Now, there was a, an expression in that day to go to Tarshish would be to go to the ends of the world. I mean, if Jonah could have bought a ticket to go further west, he would have. But this doesn't make any sense, does it? It's irrational for a prophet of God to think that he could escape the presence of God. I mean, you're sitting here going, what was he thinking, Pastor? I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. I will come back to this later on. So, you know, put this in your memory banks and store it. But what was he thinking, thinking that somehow he could escape the presence of God? I have no clue what he was thinking. But God was not going to let him get away that easy. In his mercy, he had brought for him a storm of correction to bring his child back to repentance. It says, verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So it sounds like the weather started to getting rough. And the tiny ship was tossed. and oh, You already know where I'm going with that? Okay. It's interesting, though, because this is like a really like a category four kind of storm, like whatever that means. A really rough storm. And these are experienced seamen. I mean, they ate storms for breakfast. If you think about their profession, they get paid to transfer cargo from one place to the other. The, you know, I mean, water's coming into the boat and the, the thing is, they're about to go down. They start throwing cargo overboard to save their lives. That's how desperate the situation is. To them, that's like throwing money overboard because their lives are in danger. And then we're told there in verse 5 again, it says, they all cried out to his God, to their own God. The old saying is true, there are no atheists in foxholes. Sometimes it takes horrific events to force someone to face spiritual realities. Sometimes for the people that you know in your life that you're praying for. Sometimes for us, because remember the context of this is that this is a child of God we're talking about in Jonah. You might have a son or a daughter that's wayward from the Lord right now. Sometimes it takes about horrific events to get their attention back on God. Because the thing about rebellion from God, the thing about sin, is it's not just the consequence of sin that people face because of the decisions that they make, but even sometimes it's what God will do to resist us when we made up our minds to pursue that direction of disobedience in our lives. And I think it's important here to note in the story of Jonah how serious God takes his call upon our lives as believers. He takes that call very seriously. And I'm afraid that for the most part that Christians in 2014 have developed a sort of a casual attitude about God's call upon their lives. My favorite Bible teacher, I won't tell you his name, but my favorite Bible teacher said this. I'll let him say it for me because it's a harsh 
saying. He said, I think the overwhelming majority of those who call themselves Christians think it's nothing if they ever fulfill what God has called them to do and to be. It is viewed as an optional idea. And this story of Jonah, I think, would seem to fly in the face of such a cavalier attitude towards God's call. A cavalier attitude that Jonah demonstrated up until this point. I mean, how is it that you can just quit the prophet business and be on a boat that's going down and be sound asleep? Verse 6, so the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God, perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So he's got everybody calling out on their own God. You call out on your God to all gods on deck, so to speak, because we got to take every chance that we can get because we're about to die. And it's a little bit embarrassing, I would say, when an unbelieving Gentile has to correct a believing prophet when it comes to crying out to God. And it's ironic when you consider that the reason that Jonah is on the boat in the first place is because he didn't want to talk to God. He was trying to get away from the presence of God. He was trying to avoid talking to God. But they are there, these seamen, these mariners. And they're insisting on the fact that he would do just that. Because they are believing that this is the problem. That's how believing they are. In fact, take it a step further. So believing are they that this is a supernatural act that's going on that they think it's someone on the boat even that God is mad at. Take a look at verse 7. You'll see what I mean. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they were going to cast lots, you know, like draw straws. I was a little late this morning, and, and Matt Bentley told me they were going to draw straws to see who's going to teach this morning if I didn't make it on time. Um, well, Jonah, uh, he won the lot. Look at that. Look what it says there. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah won the lot. <laughs> there was some discussion about whether you would win the lot if you uh, drew the straw and you were teaching this morning, or whether that was a get-to or not a get-to uh, this morning. Uh, Jonah won the lot. I'll show him what he's won. He's won the third degree, verse 8. Then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? And what is your occupation? Ouch. See, if it were you, you might have said, well, salesperson or teacher or whatever. But when it's Jonah, this would be a stinger. What is your occupation? Well, I'm presently in between work at the moment. <laughs> What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? It gives me the sense that they're not of the same people, right? They're not of the same country. And so he said to them, and verse 9 gives me that same sense, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I find it interesting that Jonah, with every fiber of his being, fought to preach to Gentiles, and here he is preaching to Gentiles. Who are you? What is your occupation? Where are you from? And he's saying, look, I'm a, I'm a believer in God, the God who made the sea and the dry land. Of course, also in there, he slipped in the old, I fear the Lord. Really? Well, yeah, he probably did. But seemingly, it was his lack 
of fear of the Lord that was at play here to this point, or he wouldn't have been running from God. So then, verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He was caught. He was exposed. Nothing like that. <laughs> Reminds me of a story of a pastor told. He was driving down the road one time with his daughter. He, he made a turn and he realized right away he had made an illegal turn and he said it out loud to his daughter. He said, oh, I just made an illegal turn. And she said, that's okay, Daddy. The police car behind us did the same thing. <laughs> I mean, Jonah right here is just completely busted. And now in what could only be described as like a, a role reversal, you have the unbelieving, seemingly unbelieving Gentiles grilling Jonah instead of Jonah grilling them. So verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. Yes. That word's there twice, so I just want to make sure I got that one down. I find it interesting that these mariners actually believe this whole thing, don't you? That there is a God, that God's prophet is aboard this ship, and that God is disappointed in his prophet, and that's why he's brought this storm, and their lives are in peril because of his disobedience. Did you find that a little bit interesting? That's how believing they were of the situation at hand. So as the storm is raging and, and growing, they ask him, what should we do to you? We know you're the problem here. What should we do to you that the sea will be calm for us? And verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Now, I don't think this was the only way to solve the problem. How about turn the ship around, Jonah repent, go to Nineveh, and preach to the Assyrians like he was supposed to in the first place. But I think he's so hardcore in rebellion, he'd rather face death than preach to those Ninevites. So before they throw him overboard, it's safe to say he's going overboard by saying the only way to solve this problem is just to toss me over. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. You've got to give credit to these men for rowing hard in the face of what seemed to be impossible. Rowing as hard as they could. They didn't want to throw Jonah overboard. They knew that that would lead to Jonah's death, or at least that's what they would believe. And so they're trying as best they can. But there's nothing they can do. Why? Because this isn't about them. They're caught in the middle. This is between God and Jonah. And it's now affecting them. And that's something, again, if the context is that this is a wayward child of God, you and I need to know something. We'd like to think that when we sin, the only person we affect is ourselves. But that's not true. Oftentimes, others around us get tossed around in the process when we're not obeying the voice of the Lord. And that's what's happening. And so, therefore, verse 14, they finally gave in. They cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from 
it's raging. Now, I want you to picture this in your mind. You ever been on a fishing trip, on a rocky fishing trip? I mean, it's, it's kind of a um, unnerving sort of thing. Add thunder, lightning, wind, rain, water coming over the sides, and the fear of death, and then multiply that by five. And that's what they're facing, okay? And then picture this. They're going to grab Jonah, right? You got one man, he's got his feet. One man, he's got his hands. They got, you know, the old one, two, three. They're going to throw him over the side of the boat. And they do that. And as soon as his body hits the water, boom. The sea's calm. There's a rainbow. And people say that they're not sure that they believe that a man could survive three days in the belly of a fish. I submit to you that this is a greater miracle right here. That they threw him overboard and instantly the sea was calm. In fact, the indication from the mariners would be that it was a miracle enough for them. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. And the sense there, and some translations actually read, that they vowed to serve him going forward. I think it's impressive that they vowed to serve him after they were delivered, not before. It's always in the movies and always in the television shows. It's like, God, if you'll just get me out of this one, I'll go to church for the rest of my life. But here it was after the deliverance that they vowed to serve him. In fact, it was after that the deliverance that they feared him. Isn't that interesting? They were more afraid after deliverance than they were when they were in trouble. Isn't that interesting? Think about that for a second. See, a God that can cause a storm is a distant, angry God. But a God that can deliver you from a storm is a very real God. And that caused fear in their hearts. This God is real. And so they vowed to serve him going forward. And that tells me something else. And this is definitely not the point of the story. It's not an excuse. But this demonstrates that God, even in our rebellion... Even in our mistakes, even when we're wayward, he can still have his way. Because I believe this is a genuine repentance on the part of these mariners. I believe they got saved right here. They vowed to serve Jehovah, the God of the sea and the dry land, because of what Jonah had done. I'm not saying Jonah did the right thing. I'm saying you might be here this morning and think, I've, I've blown it. I've done everything. I've, I've been cut off from my um, wife and my kids and I've lost my job and I'm on drugs and all the, I, I've made every sin that I could have ever done in my life and my life is over. And Jonah, even in the midst of rebellion here, is being used by the Lord. I mean, consider a most bizarre story of redemption. How could Jonah, the prophet, have ever begun to imagine how any good could have come from any of this situation at all whatsoever. I mean, as he's about to be thrown, or even as he's being woken up and he's being busted, you know, for not praying, or as he's being tossed into the sea, knowing he's probably going to drown or whatever the case may be, how could Jonah possibly think anything good would come of that? How could Jonah think, well, you know what? A few thousand years from now, they'll probably preaching, be preaching about this story in church somewhere in Capitola, California, another seaside town. You know, or the, the Messiah, he'll probably use this as an illustration of his own life, I'm sure. There's no way that Jonah's thinking that 
at all whatsoever, but that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for, get it, ready? Look at it, circle it, underline it. Three days and three nights. I'll come back to that in a minute. Now I'm not going to take a whole lot of time, I would have back in the day, in my younger years of Bible teaching, to convince you that a great fish could swallow a man whole. There are, uh, there's such a thing as a sperm whale, which is not even close to the largest kind of whale that there is in the world. But just the sperm whale has a 20 foot long mouth, 15 feet tall and nine feet wide. And they have found within the belly of the sperm whale, squid, albeit I get the fact that squid kind of slides down easier, But squid, the size of a man, fully intact a few days after it had been swallowed. Okay, I'm just saying it's possible. It doesn't need to be, because it only needs to be divinely possible. But I'm saying it's possible. But again, I'm going to use Jesus as my source here. Because he said, in response to the Pharisees, here is the only sign you're going to get you're gonna get the sign of the prophet Jonah. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You think that the Lord Jesus compared his literal death, burial, and resurrection to a mythological story? I don't think so. I don't think there's any way at all whatsoever and if you do, then what you need to do after church is come up, grab my Bible, and highlight for me the things I'm supposed to believe and the things I'm not supposed to believe. And then we'll create your own religion. You either believe it or you don't believe it. And I say, you believe it. The fish came and swallowed him up, and that's good enough for me because now we can move on to the lesson that is at hand for us. And that is that Jonah still at this point is not broken, not physically and not spiritually. He is not broken, despite the conditions inside of this giant fish, stifling heat, slimy tissue, his body wrapped in seaweed, we'll see, although people pay for that kind of service today. Uh, total darkness. Boiling gastric juices, you know, like standing by a frying pan and you get hit by some grease or something like that. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, apparently all of these conditions uh, present an excellent opportunity to think through the error of your ways. Jonah was in a tight spot, a real tough place. And it's been said about you and I that when we're in a tight spot, when we're in a tough place, it's either going to make us bitter or it's going to make us better. The boiling water hardens the egg and it softens the potato. And Jonah here is finally beginning to soften. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. It's interesting that the first word of chapter 2 is then. 
which means it would seem to me that it took Jonah three days and three nights before he prayed. Why? Do you think it's because he was that stubborn? Do you think it was because he was in the fish thinking, no way I'm going to Nineveh. I'll live in this fish the rest of my life for all I care. Maybe, but I don't think so. I would suggest that it's just the opposite. Sometimes, and maybe you know this from experience, I certainly do. When we've disobeyed the Lord, when we've been in rebellion from God, maybe you are right now, if you are, listen. When we're in rebellion from God, we put ourselves on a timeout. And we think to ourselves, no way I can pray now. Are you kidding? I've been a hypocrite. I've been a mess. I've made a mess of my life. And because I've made a mess of my life, I'm only coming to God now because I want him to bail me out. So there's no way he's going to respond to my prayer. Ever thought that way before? Sure you have. And I have too. And we do that. It's interesting how, how many times we learn lessons about God's grace that we somehow still make ourselves think we've got to be really, really good for God to hear our prayer. It's an affront to the grace of God. As long as I'm reading my Bible and I'm witnessing to people and I'm sharing, you know, and I'm, I'm ministering and I'm serving and I'm staying out of trouble, whatever that means, um, as long as I'm doing all those things, why do we think that that is like some kind of a recipe for a, a clear prayer channel between me and God? Exact opposite is true. You see, because if God will hear Jonah's prayer from a fish that he had prepared exactly for Jonah's rebellion, then not you, nor I, nor anyone we know is so far outside of God's will that God won't hear their prayer if you or I or they are still breathing in and out if they're still alive. Still got time. And Jonah, that's probably what he's doing right now inside the fish. He's taking stock. <laughs> okay, I'm breathing. That's, that's me. I don't know what all this is. <laughs> but I'm here. Am I dead? You know, is this hell? What's the deal? I mean, imagine, you know, what he's thinking in the first sort of senses that he's coming to um, as he's beginning, you know, what touched me? <laughs> what just slithered by me? Ever been out in the ocean? Felt something slither by you? That's happening in this whale. I'm telling you, know, fish are smacking him with their tails as they're going by. There's no way that he would know what was going to come because it would have been pitch black inside of the fish. And so that would have been a scary experience to say the least. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, from back in the day, from children's ministry pictures and things, not our children's ministry, I'll tell you that. But you know, you get the image that there's this big whale, right? And Jonah's like inside the belly of the whale and he's got like a table and a chair and a lantern, you know, and he's, he's kind of reading his Bible or something like that. No way that's what's going on. It is tight, it is dark, it is hot, and he is constricted. And I wonder if just for a moment, if just for a moment, he's thinking he walked just a little too far away from God's will and he wasn't right then and that point in hell itself. And you notice in verse 2, he says he's, he's in Sheol. And Sheol was the word for the, the underworld. I'm in Sheol. 
it's speculation. It's pure speculation. But I just wonder if then God didn't want Jonah, in a sense, to experience this exact sensation that he might indeed be in hell because he needed to understand hell in order to have a heart for the Ninevites. General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, I'll never forget it, I've told you before. He said many times, if I could take the people who wanna share the gospel and dangle them over hell for 24 hours, I'd do it. Now I don't know if Jonah literally thought that he was in hell or not, but for sure, his prayer would seem to indicate that he's in deep, that he's surrounded, that he's in a desperate situation. So he continues, verse 3, 4, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight. Imagine the thought that would occur to think that you'd be out of the sight of God. Yet I will look again to your holy temple. This is what it takes sometimes. David said in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I seek your word. Sometimes the remedy for our um, tendency to wander, to go astray from God, is affliction from God. And David said, when I was afflicted, then I seek your word. Sometimes that's what's necessary in the life of a believer. You notice that from verse 3, Jonah is going down. It's a self-inflicted kind of thing. He's going down um, in, his inf- in his focus and in his rebellion. Down, verse 3, into, to Joppa. Down into the ship. Down to the lowest parts of the ship, verse 5. Verse 15, down into the sea. Verse 17, down into the fish. And here, about as deep down as you can go, it says... The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And I went down to the moorings of the mountains. By the way, it was thousands of years later before scientists found out there were mountains in the ocean. The Bible was telling this long before. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord. How far will God allow a person to go down? He'll allow them to go down as far as it takes. You notice that Jonah said his soul fainted. He just gave up, which is exactly what God wanted him to do, was to just give up, to just give in to his will. As far as it takes, as deep as it takes, whatever it takes, to the point that we would then, you know, consider possibly turning our heart towards him again. That's what he does. And my prayer, he says, went up to you, end of verse 7, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Finally. Finally, we got where we were trying to get to the whole time, Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. In other words, it is not the prophet's business to decide who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. Salvation is of the Lord. I don't get to decide where I go or where I don't go. Salvation is of the Lord. And by the way, sometimes when you and I 
don't do the things that God's asked us to do. Whatever those things are, I'm not just talking about a, a spiritual calling. We think about callings always exclusively within the body of Christ, within a local church body. I'm talking about active obedience in your private life, whatever the case may be. Whenever we disobey God's call upon our life, don't think that for a second that we are flying in the face, our lives are, of the idea and the suggestion that salvation is of the Lord. Because what we're saying is we're saying no to God. And that could have an impact on salvation. If I say no to God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm not going to change my life. I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to change my ways. I'm not going to give up this thing. Then that could impact salvation. And salvation is of the Lord, and I don't get to do that. And so it's because of this declaration that we're told here in the end of chapter 2, verse 10, one of the most poetic verses in the Bible. Uh, so the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And if it did indeed vomit him and not spit him up, then the old saying is true that you cannot keep a good man down. <laughs> Probably slightly curtailed sunbathing activities for the day. The bonfire barbecue, not so much. Seeing this like vomited man flying out of the sky onto the beach. Good thing we don't have agape feast today. I'm going to close with two great lessons. There are a lot of things that we could talk about. We don't have time to get into this morning, but there's a lot of things. But I'm going to close with two great lessons from the book of Jonah that we saw this morning. Number one, I think it's obvious but important to remind ourselves of how foolish it is to try and run from God, to try and flee from his presence. It says there twice in the first five verses of chapter one, as if he wasn't there or as if he didn't care. As if what he was asking you, as if what he was asking me wasn't that important. Whatever it is, again, it doesn't matter. It's not just like you're saying, well, Joe, you have a unique kind of thing. You're a pastor. I'm not called to do this. I'm called to be this. But there's something in your life. You know what it is right now. If you're allowing the Lord to search your heart, you're in tune to the frequency of the Holy Spirit. He's telling you right now what it or what the things are that you're being stubborn about. And it is no more foolish, get this, listen, it is no more foolish to try and run away from the presence of God than it is to ignore God's call and act as if he's not looking. It's the exact same thing. The very same thing that we do when we disobey the Lord is no different than trying to run away from God, like an ant trying to get away from me in a sink. It's just as foolish. Reminds me of a man named Gary Tyndall who was on trial for robbery in the courtroom of Judge Rodriguez many years ago. During a recess, he asked to go to the restroom. Somehow he messed with the plumbing and found his way up the crawl space to try and get away. He made it about 30 feet when the panels collapsed from underneath him and he fell right in front of the bench of Judge Rodriguez, <laughs> right where he had began. That's kind of where Jonah is right now at this point. David said, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Awesome. 
And we could sit here all day long and talk about why Jonah, what reasons he had to disobey God. The better question is, what is your reason? What is my reason? What is your Nineveh? What's the one place you won't go? What's the one mission you won't accept? What's the one thing you won't give up? What's the one thing you've said no to God consistently about over and over and over again? Because he has very creative ways of negotiating with his children. And you might not want to put him to the test. Just saying. Number two, and this is the final thing that I want to close with, my second observation, is the stubbornness of God. That's right. The stubbornness of God. Because they don't make him more stubborn than Jonah. <laughs> but God outstubborned Jonah. And I found in my own life that God outstubborns me. Fight, kick and scream, resist. He is a stubborn God who wants for me what he wants for me because he's jealous for me, because he knows what's best for me. Now, I know that that applies to you and me. And I know that it's important for us. I don't care where you're at this morning. I don't care how far you've strayed from God. I don't care how far you've gone, what you've done to rebel. I don't care what your sin is. This morning, this very moment, you pray to God. You ask God to forgive you. You are not down to the moorings of the mountains. And God will restore you as he did with Jonah. But I know that's the context. Is This is a child of God who has wandered away. But I also want to wrap up with this final thought because I think it's very important. As again, I spent time with my unbelieving brother these past few days. And every time I'm around him, I'm reminded of Jonah. I'm reminded of a wayward child. I'm reminded of a person. You all have people. People in your life that you pray for constantly, all the time, day after day. Brothers, sisters, parents, children, you name it. Friends, people you're going to come in contact with over the next few days. And if there's nothing at all that you learn from the story of Jonah, you should learn that God will go to radical extremes, if necessary, to get the attention of a wayward child. And you can take solace in that. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop witnessing. Don't uh, give them up. Don't throw in the towel on them. You keep with it. There are people in this room who kept with it, and now their spouse, now their child, now their brother is born again because they kept with it, and they would testify of that. So we need to do the same thing because there are Jonas in our lives as well. Father, we thank you. I praise you, Lord, for your, your word and uh, your, your love your grace, your mercy, your patience with us in our lives. And Lord, everybody here has been a Jonah probably at one point or another. And we just thank you that, that you are uh, so good to us. And I thank you that you're stubborn. And Lord, we lift up everyone we know doesn't know you. We know we believe in hell. Whatever that is, outer darkness, the lake of fire, away from your presence forever, permanent 
We don't wish that upon our worst enemy, let alone our best friend. Lord, we'd give our right arm for people we know to come to you. So how is it that we could give up in this lifetime praying? We're living a life of obedience that it might point to them the truth that they need. So in us, Lord, stir us up this morning to be just that for them, for those around us, for the people you love. In Jesus' name.